readings this morning, and they will follow without interruption. But the first reading is not on your sheet. Um, the first reading is from 2 Timothy 1, 15 to 18. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. O Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death. On that DVD clip we saw, the lady who was speaking invited us to pray. And some of us in this room may be sufficiently concerned to pray for the persecuted in the world, of which there are many, the terrible things that are happening in Syria, those things in North Korea, Eritrea, throughout the world. And if you're cons considerably tested and concerned as we are, perhaps you'd like to speak to us afterwards. We're on the coffee duty, so if you're interested, we would like to set an hour apart this week at your convenience at a time that you might choose to pray about these things in more depth. Thank you.
A very good morning to all of you. It's lovely to be back, and uh, since I came to this diocese, it's been a great uh, pleasure and privilege to know Tim and Kate and their family. And I can remember one occasion coming to diocesan do here that, uh, that was being hosted here, and I was just in a bit of a kind of low state, you know, do you ever get into a low state? And I was thinking, oh, am I really doing my job well enough? Is it working? And, and, and then Tim asked me to, I think it was, do a reading. And he introduced me in such a nice way. And my very good friend, Philip Swan, will come up and do a reading. And I kind of was lifted right up like that. And so, um, but I think this is a place of, of blessings, this uh, Christchurch. And I felt that coming here this morning, uh, uh, something to do with God's anointing on this place, both a place of privilege and a place of challenge. And if I could share something a little bit unrelated that may, God may sort of weave into things. Um, as I was coming here from Wolverhampton where I live, uh, the, the sun was quite low and it was sort of behind me. And uh, for a long time now, my rear windscreen wiper has not worked. I think the engine's blown. And so it's kind of very, very dirty. And, um, and I was just aware of the sun just not being able to shine through that rear windscreen. Uh, and it, to the point of it being quite dangerous, so I couldn't actually sort of see what was happening, as well as missing out of the, the, the sheer beauty of a, a, an amazingly inspiring day. And, um, and in the end, I stopped. Uh, I, I didn't, I'm not one of these people who have all this equipment to hand. I didn't have sort of water and cloth to clean it with. But I, I stopped in a lay-by, picked up some grass and sort of had some dew on and started sort of improving it a bit. And that was significantly better. Uh, and then I gave it another wipe. And it got cleaner and cleaner. It's still not right yet. But I don't know. It's just a picture. that I, It made me think of how much, uh, the extent to which we kind of, uh, the, the dirt as it were, the grime, the, the, the bad habits, the failures to do what we kind of so much want to do, create this kind of film that obscures the light and love of God shining through. And perhaps um, this morning as we come to think about God's heart for his broken world, we might sort of have that image in mind, although I have a sense it might actually apply to someone in a very specific way. But, so it is great to be here. I, I, you could say I wear a number of hats in the diocese, but I, you could also say I wear a number of shirts in the diocese. And uh, this morning I'm wearing a shirt from West, our partner diocese of West Malaysia. And uh, actually as I kind of wear it, it gives me a sense of being one uh, with our brothers and sisters there, who I'll be referring to uh, shortly. I also wear a community of St. Chad hat and was very grateful to be asked uh, in August to come and speak to a group in, on a Sunday evening about that. Uh, and also uh, the St. Chad's volunteer program that offers a rather amazing gap year package for people between the age of 18 and 35 who want to connect with a global church run by the diocese. But I'm here today particularly to share a number of insights into the persecuted church under the theme of one with them. And already I've so much appreciated being able to sort of connect with the flow of what's been done and what will be done in the prayers that follow. 
So I don't, I don't know about you, but you, you do reach a point of sort of compassion fatigue and you reach a point of sort of information overload and there's just a limit to the data that you can take in. This little sheet that's being given out, entitled The War on Christians, does have some really helpful information that I hope you can uh, process in due course. Um, but the thing that touches me are the stories, actually individuals who have been affected through persecution. In the traditional church calendar, November has become a month for remembrance. We've had All Saints Day and All Souls Day. To, today, the very important focus on Remembrance Day. A number of churches have memorial services. And so it's very fitting that the modern church does set aside today for particularly as an international day of prayer for the persecuted church. And that, that video we had earlier enabled us to connect with them. But first, we recognize and acknowledge that we are also one with those who have given their lives in war, particularly in our context, those who were killed in World Wars I and II. But we remember all the conflicts since, and we reflect on the wars which continue. And there is a sense in which that theme of one with them uh, connects in that way too. Well, today, as Christians gathered in security and safety here in Baston Hill with enormous gifts, resources, and opportunities, we focus on the persecuted church and we seek to put into practice what we often pay lip service to and what we know in our heads to be true, that we are one with them. Well, who are they? Well, I'm aware that some of you have been to the Save uh, Syria uh, initiative, which connects with initiatives such as Open Doors or the Christian Solidarity Worldwide. But let's, in fact, hear some of the stories that lie behind what's going on at a community level. The International Day of Prayer focuses especially on Syria. Let's hear Hannah's story. She's a Christian living in Damascus with her husband and two daughters. She shares the daily struggle of living with war and persecution. She says, I'm nervous, I'm upset. Everyone is. The streets are empty. Food prices have doubled. Every moment a bomb can explode and snipers are everywhere. It's hard for the kids. We try so hard to be good parents, but we see them change. Living with God is the only way to cope with this war. I'm also afraid to bring my daughters to school. I hope and pray my daughters will survive the war. And we're asked to pray for peace and an end to bloodshed and violence and for Christians to have the strength to remain in Syria and to be a light to their nation. A Syrian pastor says, my people are hurting. I can cry like Nehemiah because the walls of our cities are burnt and the people are in great trouble and disgrace. I can weep like Jeremiah because of the intensity and spread of evil. I can mourn like David because of the indiscriminate, brutal killing of innocent people, children, women, elderly youth, subject to shelling or under the rubble of their homes. 
a church with a 2,000-year history where Christians, along with many in the Middle East, are struggling to survive. Earlier this year, there was that horrendous bombing of All Saints Church in Peshawar, Pakistan's worst ever attack on the beleaguered Christian community and the 85 people who were killed in that bombing were described uh, by Archbishop Justin as martyrs. We are one with them. And then within Egypt, the Coptic Christian community, another very ancient church, taking up some 10% of the population, are under enormous pressure under the new regime to stand firm and to hold on to their faith. Today we focus on the persecuted church, but I, I would add a humbling and important corrective to some of our strongly held values and beliefs, that both in Egypt and in Peshawar, at that bombing, the Christians were supported by members of the Muslim community who came out in solidarity to express their support. And I found this deeply moving. And as we seek to discern God's heart, we don't want to get too hung up on some of the other divisions that we hold as we seek to find what his purposes are. The final example I wanted to give was actually, um, well, following on from Nigeria, which is another country which is uh, torn apart by the conflict between Muslims in the north and predominantly Christians in the south, is with our companion diocese of uh, West Malaysia. Uh, these companion dioceses, of which Litchfield has four, gives an amazing chance to live out this one with them mentality and attitude where we actually know that they are part of who we are. And we're informed. We're aware of what's going on. And so in the last four years, Christians in West Malaysia have experienced quite a significant form of persecution through being in a Muslim-dominated government. They, in fact, have not been able to use the word Allah for God, which is a term they've used for centuries and has been recognized over that period of time. And there's been very strong pressure to sort of ban that so that the, their translation in their Bibles can't be used. And it's led to a certain amount of some number of churches being attacked. And so we want to think and identify with them on this occasion. Bishop Moon Hingi, you see on the left, has spoken out very bravely and courageously on behalf of Christians, but in a way too that reflects other groupings who are being persecuted and marginalized. So let us remember, particularly those brothers and sisters in West Malaysia. Well, I said um, final example, but it's not quite. What about the UK? What about the incidents that have received an enormous amount of publicity, such as Colin Jackson, the van driver, who was asked to remove his palm cross, which he'd been displaying for 15 years on the dashboard of his car. In the end, he 
won his case and he, he wasn't dismissed. But this can give us great cause for concern about the UK and about the West generally. And I think there are very significant pressures that we as a Christian community need to acknowledge and face up to. But at the same time too, I have sympathy with Archbishop Rowan Williams when he said actually don't get that out of perspective. There's a certain desperate nature to the suffering of our brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world for their faith that by comparison to what's going on here just hardly registers. So let's sort of keep the thing in perspective, but let's too be open and aware that actually our Christian identity within England will be increasingly under threat. Well, I'd like to turn now to the passage from 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we hear Paul talking about a few individuals who are mentioned by name who responded in very contrasting ways to his imprisonment. Paul was no stranger himself to persecution. In verse 15, he actually underlines the fact that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted him. And he mentions two people by name, Phrygelus, Phygelus. I, I always say, say these names with confidence, and, but anyway, there's one name, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Paul says, everyone's deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. I wonder if they're mentioned because they were particular disappointments. Perhaps he had such high expectations of them, followers who'd shown at one time enormous promise and faithfulness. But where are they now? Well, it reminds me of a rather trivial incident, probably when I was about 11 at school, and... Um, We'd messed around in a music lesson with a music teacher who didn't know what he was doing. But anyway, my, the, the, the form teacher was not impressed and got reports of this. And, and uh, next morning, asked a certain number of us who were involved in this to stand at the front of the class. Any of you had experiences like this? And, uh, and it was as if, um, and she said, and Philip Swan, I am especially shocked that you are in this group. And, and, and maybe there's a slight sense that Paul's saying this about Phygelus and Hermogenes. You know, that maybe there they were just such encouraging people, such so sort of full-on in their faith, and yet where are they now? They're singled out as being part of the group who had deserted Paul in his time of need. Reminds me a little bit of someone who appears a little bit later in, in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 10. The rather tragic verse that refers to Demas or Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. We can only speculate on the reasons for this desertion, but the conflict of interests with his love for the world won out. I mean, I wonder if there's a, a challenge there, really, because one way or another, the love of this world remains a, a, an enormously strong competitor to our trust in God and our obedience to Christ. I was reminded, too, of Jesus' parable of the sower. Only the soil that was in the good, good ground, with the good conditions, yielded a hundredfold. The rest of the seeds uh, had 
very mixed fortunes. It's not easy to follow Christ. It's not easy to be faithful. It's not easy to remember our place in God's worldwide family. There are amongst us deserters. There are enormous pressures to give up. And we think today of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church, the pressures they face, and those who have chosen the way of obedience to keep going. And they challenge us, surely, they challenge me to consider the depth and the extent of my faith and commitment. And so this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1 just brings home that really rather depressing, deserting response. But what an amazing contrast to the person that follows, Onesiphorus. His loyalty is praised. And Paul says, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. The household too, significant, although individuals matter, and we may single people out by name, um, we're all in some ways part of households or small cells or communities and how we are with them really matters. So significant that the household of Onesiphorus is, is singled out because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. This is the only place in the New Testament where that word refreshed is used. And uh, you might um, actually uh, have the picture of um, a glass of cold water that uh, actually uh, there's an Esiphorus. You see others were ashamed and turned away, but he was not. And uh, here, this picture of the refreshment that Onesiphorus brought by contrast to the other two. We've got to picture Paul not like his first imprisonment where, under, where he was under house arrest in a rented apartment, but here he's probably chained. He's perhaps a little bit more like Terry Waite was when he was a hostage in Lebanon at a rather kind of unknown, deliberately secret location. It's dark and damp, no meals, it would have been very difficult to find him. Maybe Onesiphorus had never been to Rome before. People would have been suspicious of him. But he was not ashamed. And what do we read about him? On the contrary, he searched hard for me until he found me. He searched hard for me until he find, found me. And it just made me wonder about how persistent we are. How persistent we are in, in witnessing. That's what a martyr actually means, someone who witnesses, and we're all called to be witnesses. It's whether we're good witnesses or bad witnesses, we're all witnesses. How persistent are we in, in deepening our own life of prayer? How persistent are we in remaining in solidarity with those who are suffering in the persecuted church? Do we give up at the first hurdle or do we persevere? And so the, and so the passage finishes, verse 18 with a prayer of blessing that Paul makes for Onesiphorus. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. And I hope that your prayers are personal and specific like that. You see, it's moving from a place where we might say, Lord, bless and help the persecuted church, 
to say, Lord, be with Hannah. Help her in relating to her daughters as she struggles to keep them and to provide a safe environment for her. Be with that Syrian pastor. Try to be specific, not only in this area of prayer, but others. So when God looks at us as a church family, when God looks at you, we've seen how Timothy, on the one hand, singled out negatively by Jealous and Hermogenes. On the other hand, this amazing inspiration and encouragement from Onesiphorus. Where would you be on that spectrum? It's a kind of continuum, isn't it? A really sad, tragic story of desertion, an amazing account of inspiration and refreshment. I hope maybe this morning we'll seek to just move a few steps closer to where Onesiphorus is, to where God calls us. Because we can be those who pretend or hide or change allegiance and say it's all too much trouble, let them get on with it, let others do it, or we can engage and respond ourselves. I wanted in the closing section to encourage you to be informed. There's a lot of opportunities within this church to be aware of what's going on. There are people uh, like, like, like Andrew and John at the earliest service. There are others who are well informed and are seeking to share information. Try to get a real accurate picture of, of what is going on because that's the first step to sharing our identities with them and being aware of their needs. Be aware of agencies, website, prayer needs. Perhaps be aware of individuals within the communities that you may be part of. Be aware of asylum seekers. Listen to their stories. Don't be part of that move that so readily writes off refugees and asylum seekers as coming up with sort of false stories. I assure you that very usually is not the case. And as we hear those stories, we think of what those people have been through. But not only be, inv be informed, but also be involved. And this reminds me of the rather higher level of involvement expected of the pig rather than the chicken in facing the bacon and egg breakfast. Actually, be mildly involved like the chicken a little bit interested or deeply involved like the pig at a sacrificial level. And that's really what we are called to, that our hearts are touched, that we connect with God's broken heart for those who are being persecuted for their faith. I'd like to just remind you of this particular poem that was written for the German Confessing Church around the time of Bonhoeffer in 1946. First they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for the communists, I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak out for me. Don't underestimate the importance of speaking out for our persecuted brothers and sisters. We are involved, whether we like it or not, because we are one body. 
friendships with brothers and sisters from different parts of the world are just so important. Our mission links give us insights into that and we see often extraordinary resilience that helps us in our context to press on and be faithful and to be like Onesiphorus, to count our blessings, to laugh with those who laugh but to weep with those who weep and to show that much is expected of those to whom much is given. We are the body of Christ. May we truly and deeply experience that we are indeed one with them as God is most fully one with us in Jesus Christ. Amen.